0: Would you please open our Bibles to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Let's start in verse 3. Would you stand if you can? Starting verse 3 as a reference to the servant of the Lord here. Referring to the servant says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we... Esteem Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, and He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. You may be seated. Father, we, we come before you, and as your children, we ask you to help us, give us your precious food. We are hungry for you. We need you. So please help me, help me to be faithful, and help this congregation to be faithful in the listening of your holy word for the glory of the triune God. Amen. Amen. If you paid attention to the words that we sing, the words that we are often singing in this church, the hymns we are singing, uh, you, you're going to see the, the songs and the hymns, they reveal, the, they're an opening of the theology that we believe. So the songs of our church are very revealing as to the doctrine of the church. Our doxology is the fruit, doxology, the giving of glory and praise. Our doxology is the fruit of our theology, our Christology. So we sing here, Jesus paid it all, all to him, my owe. He paid it all. Or we sing also, as we sing today, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, what? Not in part, but the whole. Is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Or, men of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless. We, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can He be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. How about this? Christ the true and better, he who makes the many righteous, brings us back to life again. Dying, he reversed the curse, then rising, crushed the serpent's head. Or one more. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by the water and the word. And Look at that. From heaven he came and saw her. To be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. All these hymns we sing publicly. We are publicly expressing what we believe about Christ. Amen. It's, a, it's an open door to what we truly hold. And in this church there is no hypocrisy. As to sing these hymns. There is no duplicity in singing these hymns. And then say actually it wasn't like that. There are some churches and even some author of some of these hymns, as I told you, the Wesley brothers, they would sing about the power of Christ saving, and yet behind the hymns they would say, No, but actually, you need to do your part. And what we are doing here is just following the pattern of the Bible. You think about Israel when they were redeeming the first Passover, the first Exodus, that's the first time we have a hymn. In the scriptures, Exodus 15. And they sing about the Lord. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is the one who redeemed us. And then we follow after we as went through the new and better Exodus through Jesus, the great Passover, we also sing about Him. And we are actually following the standard of heaven. In heaven, that's what they're singing. They're singing about the Savior. So in Revelation chapter 5 Verses 9 through 10 says, And they sang a new song, and that's referring to the lamb, saying, Worthy are you to take these crows and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Note that in heaven they're not singing, look at that, they're not singing. You made men redeemable. You made men savable. They're not singing, by your blood, now anyone can choose you, if only they choose you. They're not, so, they're not singing, also, worthy are you, for you were slain, and now people in hell have been washed with your blood. The heavenly hymn is very clear that Jesus did not accomplish possibilities, but actualities. You ransomed people for God the Father. Therefore, we will keep singing in this church about a Redeemer who redeems, a Savior who saves, amen? A high priest who is perfect in his priestly ministry, And I pray that as we are studying this wonderful doctrine of atonement, the death of Christ, that we will never sing the same again. I pray as we understand the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, this unique love towards each one of us, I pray that as we sing hymns, I pray that all our words would be baptized with a new affection for Him who saved us and had our names written on His heart. Amen? So, as we continue our series here, we are walking through what, it, what does it mean to be a Reformed Baptist church? And we are walking through the, what it means to be Reformed. And we saw that part of being Reformed is to hold into the five solas, the five points of the doctrines of grace, and that's where we are. We walk through total depravity, unconditional election, and now we are in limited atonement. So here's the outline of this morning's sermon. We're going to continue our journey here through limited atonement, and we're going to come to limited atonement verified. So, last Lord's Day, just to review and refresh our minds here, last Lord's Day, we define limited atonement. So it's important to have this doctrine defined. And we saw that the doctrine of limited atonement or definite atonement declares that Jesus did not come to die for an abstract, faceless, and unknown mass of people that he did not know personally or individually. No, the good shepherd died for each and every one of the sheep that the Father had predestined and elected by sovereign mercy to be vessels of his unconditional love. Amen? That's what this doctrine declares. Or, more With more eloquence, we can quote David and Jonathan Gibson. They say, The doctrine of definite or limited atonement states that in the death of Jesus Christ, the triune God intended to achieve the redemption of every person given to the Son by the Father in eternity past, and to apply the accomplishments of His sacrifice to each of them by the Spirit. So you have a Trinitarian work. The death of Christ was intended to win the salvation of God's people alone. Amen? We declare that when Jesus died on that cross, He was not wasting His blood. He was not shedding His blood for people in hell. He had a very peculiar, limited group of people, and those were the chosen ones that the Father had given to Him. So that was defined. So let's move to verified Let's see, do we have biblical evidence to support that? That's the key question, right? It doesn't matter what anybody says. What matters is, what does this scripture tell us? And and that's what we're going to be looking here. And the doctrine of limited atonement, brothers and sisters, you don't prove the doctrine by getting a group of verses here and then contrasting a group of verses there. Okay? You can see that's not what I'm doing. Like every other doctrine, you don't create a doctrine out of nowhere, it's flowing, it's all flowing from the the whole, the whole drum of scriptures, the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And that's important because I was thinking, I did not embrace these doctrines because I was reformed, as if Because you're Reformed, you must embrace these doctrines. That's not what happened. I embrace these doctrines because they're clearly showing the Scriptures, and then consequently came the label of Reformed. We don't make a system of doctrine fit our tradition. Amen? We fit into a tradition, the Reformed tradition, because we believe these doctrines should be clearly taught in the Bible. And as I argued earlier in other sermons, there is the importance of the Trinity to understand this doctrine. There is the importance of understanding the death of Christ. And today, what I want to show you, is start showing you, is how both the Old and the New Testament, both that Testaments declare one, one coherent story of a triune God saving a definite group of people by a definite sacrifice and that's what we're going to be seeing today so we're going to go to limited atonement first in the old testament in the old testament and remember we're going to go to starting genesis and remember genesis is written by Moses and they are ready they already know that they are the chosen ones of god so every time we're going to start studying the doctrine of atonement you've got to keep in mind that there is election Election is always prior to atonement. So I have here, it's within the larger, it's within the larger theological construction of Israel's election that any old testament theology of atonement or salvation must be understood. Unconditional election precedes atonement. Redemption, salvation, and atonement, they flow from God's unconditional choice of a people for Himself. Amen? So that's very important because we are going to start in Genesis 22. And who is the main character in Genesis 22? Main character, human character, Abraham. And remember that Abraham was chosen by God, not because he was better than the other pagans, but because of sovereign grace. Amen? Remember that Abraham was worshiping idols when God chose him. So election always precedes Atonement and salvation. Keep that in mind. So as we come to Genesis chapter twenty-two, and then we have the story of the almost sacrifice of Isaac, and that's so crucial because what takes place in Genesis twenty-two will be very significant for the rest of the scriptures. What takes place on Mount Moriah with the sacrifice of the ram there on behalf of the seed is going to be developed throughout the whole Bible. And here, Abraham, he's clearly pictured as a priest. Abraham is portrayed as a high priest. How? Oh, well, he builds the altar, he places the wood, and he offers the sacrifice. He's working as a high priest. And remember that the ram takes the place of whom? Isaac. His son Isaac. So there is a peculiar and definite sacrifice that takes place. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, look at the high priest here. And Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering. What? Instead. Instead, vicariously. Do you remember? In the place... Of his son. So the ram is not sacrificed on behalf of all humanity. The ram is sacrificed on behalf of whom? Who represents the chosen seeds of Yahweh. So that's crucial. The ram takes the place of the chosen people. Here we see the vicarious and limited death of the sacrifice. The sacrifice was offered on behalf of one group of people. The chosen ones. The ram dies as a substitute for a very specific person, Isaac, who represents a specific group of people. The chosen ones. The chosen seed. So, Morales says, Yahweh's provision of a sacrifice on Mount Moriah Moriah, foreshadows the provision of sacrificial lambs that would redeem the firstborn of Israel in the Passover and comprise the heart of worship in Leviticus. So that's being developed throughout the whole rest of the scriptures now. Genesis 22, you can picture, is a seed that we will sprout and grow with this theology of sacrifice. Vicarious sacrifice on behalf of a chosen seed. Glorious Mount Moriah. So much there. But we don't have time to just stay there. So we move. Let's move to the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 12. And remember, as we come to the book of Exodus, we are dealing with election. Election precedes what? Atonement. So before you have the Passover, we are dealing with a chosen people. And that's important to keep in mind because what we have is this picture where death... Israel is pictured as dead in their sins, under Pharaoh. And they need to go through an exodus journey to be with God and find life again. And God is showing that this exodus, this exodus journey back into his presence always requires the sacrifice of a perfect, a perfect substitute. And that's what God is showing us through here. Before Israel is brought into the divine presence, there must be redemption through the shedding of blood. And then you think about the sacrifice of the, lo- the, the lamb and the blood smeared is hyssop upon the doorposts of the house. It's a beautiful picture of forgiveness through faith. So we read in Exodus chapter 12. We read that all the congregation of Israel. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month. Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house for a household. So you see here that now every single head of a household, he's going to behave just like Abraham. A kingdom of priests. And they're going to be acting as a priest in that they're going to be sacrificing and offering to the Lord. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and the length of the house on which they eat. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And, not plague, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So here we see the firstborn. The lamb dies as a vicarious sacrifice in the place of who? The firstborn. Isaac was the true firstborn. Of, firstborn according to the promise. And there was a ram who died for him. And now you see how the sacrificial system is taking place. And it's always for a very specific person. God's intended pers- purpose was to redeem Israel and not Egypt. Atonement is taking place in order to redeem a very specific group of people. So Paul Williamson, he says, Each lamb served as a specific body of people and redeem. A prescribed household. Moreover, only those who actually participated in the Passover meal could find refuge behind the blood's mere door frames. There is thus no idea here of an all embracing sacrifice, but rather one that served a specific goal for a specific group. He says, the Passover cannot, therefore, be conceived as some kind of general sacrifice that made provision for all and sundry. Rather, it's clearly portrayed as having a definite goal and a particular focus. And you've got to keep that in mind because when you move to the New Testament, that's this whole theology of the Passover that's going to be applied to whom? Jesus Christ. So either we cannot come to the New Testament and just forget about the Old because they're building their theology of sacrifice and death on what's taking place here. So, if the Passover lamb is not dying for every single individual in the universe, how can you come to Jesus and say, but he died for every single individual in the whole world? There is a whole theology being built together here. The redemption brought forth by Yahweh did not merely make their re- release from Egypt Egypt is slavery possible, it brought them out of bondage. Amen. And as we move to the book of Leviticus, you think moving there to the book of Leviticus, and what is the main purpose of Leviticus is to help us understand, okay, now there is this new humanity that has been redeemed, this new man that has been redeemed by the blood to dwell with the holy God. How, how are they gonna be able to dwell with the holy God? Because they still have sin. And that's the whole goal of Leviticus, is to explain to to, to God's people how a sinful people can abide with a holy God. And that's going to be through the means of what? Sacrifices. Sacrifices. And And as you come to the book of Leviticus, if you look at how the book is structured, the book is structured to chapter 16, and chapter 16 deals with the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And not only the book of Leviticus, because you think about we have Genesis, Exodus, then you have Deuteronomy, Numbers, and who is in the middle? Leviticus. So you think about the Torah, the first five books, there is a crescendo and reach the Day of Atonement. That's the heart of the whole Torah. And what is the Day of Atonement? God providing forgiveness, so He can continue dwelling with His people. That's the whole point. How a holy God will continue dwelling with a sinful people, and the Day of Atonement help us to understand that. And in verse 33, we read the the high priest shall make atonement. And look at that, for all the nations, every single individual. No, for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. That's the church, the assembly, the ecclesia. Atonement is accomplished only for those who belong to the Lord. Those animals did not bring forgiveness of sins to all the other nations, but only for those who by faith were part of God's people. Atonement, thus, is limited in scope, but unlimited in power. There is cleansing from all the sins so God can continue dwelling with them, but there is a limit in the scope. And they remember that much of the sacrificial system required the the one who is offering the sacrifice to do all with his hands. Place upon the animal. And the high priest who is representing the whole nation, he needs to place his hands. And showing this very, very wonderful picture of a vicarious sacrifice. A definite, a limited atonement. So the Day of Atonement, the most important day in the Old Testament, shows us that God had appointed a high priest, a particular man, from a definite group of people, the Levites, to offer a specific sacrifice for a definite and limited group of people. That's Israel. Do you see how it's all very peculiar, very definite, very limited? One man, the high priest, from one tribe, the Levites, from one group, Israel with a very specific sacrifice to be offered. Another important aspect, as we are thinking about the high priest, the day of atonement, Leviticus, Exodus, is the office of the high priest. The particular, definite, and limited ministry of the high priest. The priesthood is crucial to understand atonement. You cannot understand sacrifice, salvation, redemption, atonement without the high priest. Amen? Amen. We saw how Abraham is functioning as a high priest. We can go back all the way way to Adam, how he serves as a high priest. There is no theology of atonement without priesthood. Priesthood and atonement, they work together. And the high priest is the mediator. He's representing a group of people before the holy God. That's the role of the high priest. The high priest interceded for a very definite and limited group of people. So in Exodus 28, for example, you can read there, it says, You shall take the two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signet, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them settings of gold and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as the stones of what? remembrance for the sons of Israel. So here's is the picture. The high priest he's coming before God and he has two stones in each shoulder. One on each shoulder. And each stone, he has the names of whom? God's people. The names engraved there. And is on the shoulder because he's carrying them into God's presence. Carrying on his shoulders. He's bringing them. And a stone of remembrance because he's reminding God of his covenantal faithfulness. He's reminding God of the people he's bringing here. The covenant. Remember, to remember is a, a covenantal terminology. The covenant that he has with his very specific people. The high priest had the name of the twelve tribes. He did not have the name of the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites. The high priest comes before God on behalf of all Israel. He does not come to represent every single individual. As the high priest stepped into the Holy of Holies, he was representing the people of God, not the Egyptians, Babylonians, Canaanites. He ministered on behalf of the chosen ones of God. So the high priest never intercedes or makes atonement for every single person indiscriminately. There is a group of people. Stephen Wellam, he writes, The high priest's appointment was for the purpose of representing a particular people before God. Namely, all those under the old covenant. This representative work is beautifully portrayed in the clothing of the high priest. Clothing which was not simply for the aesthetics, but also was instructive in regard to the work of the priest. From head to toe. Because sometimes we just think, oh, the beauty. all the beauty of the the, the tabernacle. How God is concerned with the beauty. Yeah, but there is a lot of theology behind the beauty. God is portraying as the, the... the high priest as a new Adam coming to his presence. The heavenlies, is a new creation. There is a whole theology behind it. It's not just, oh, you see, God is concerning his beauty here. There is a whole theological purpose. From head to toe, the priest's garments were designed to teach Israel and later generations something of the priest's work as the representative of the people. He says, for example, the priest's breastplate contained 12 gems with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel set on them. Each time he went into the presence of God, he would carry these gems with him. Indicating that he was there on behalf of the people with whom Yahweh had entered into covenant. Never did the priests ever represent and mediate for people other than the covenant people of God. And this this whole theology of priest and sacrifice will be culminating when it comes to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is going to put the two together. The priestly ministry and the sacrif- sacrificial ministry in the servant of Yahweh. But before we get there, there's one more passage in the Old Testament that I think it's important. And that's in 1 Samuel. Look with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3. Here's the word of God to Eli. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be what? shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Any question of a limited atonement in the Old Testament? Right there. God limits, not man. God limits. God is in charge. As we move to Isaiah 53, here we come to the apex of the whole drum of redemption. The whole theology of atonement, the whole uh, theology of priesthood, sacrifice, they all come crashing together in the person of the servant of Yahweh. As the drama of atonement and redemption develops through the scriptures, we see that God himself will have to come to rescue his people. That's why he's pictured as the arm of the Lord, an extension of Yahweh himself. God, the perfect God, must become the perfect sacrifice and the perfect mediator. And as we come to chapter 53, we're dealing with the servant song. He's called the servant. Why? Because he came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. He's the servant because he's doing the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is for him to save those whom the Father chose. And the servant dies a vicarious death on behalf of God's chosen people. Like the Passover lamb or the sacrificial goat on the day of atonement, the servant dies a powerful death for a very specific group of people. Look at, with me, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the language of the day of atonement, where the goat would carry the sins of God's people. We esteem, we, we, our, our, we, we steam him not. Stricken, smitten afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed, crushed for our iniquities. upon him was a chastisement that brought, what? us, shalom, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. Know that the servant of Yahweh was pierced because, because of our transgression. For he's taking the place of a group of people. And the whole picture here is the whole sacrificial system coming to be fulfilled in this figure. Alec Motier, he says, Yahweh himself, acting as his own high priest to satisfy his own holiness, literally, Yahweh caused to meet on Him the iniquity of us all. Drama indeed, the death of the servant, is the intersection point of all space and time. From north, south, east, west, from past, present, and future, the divine hand gathers gathers in the sins of all the sinners that He proposes to save, and personally conducts them to a solemn and holy spot, the head of His Servant. Look at me, Isaiah 53, look at verse 8. He was cut off of, out of the land of the living, He's stricken for the transgression of who? Whose transgression? My people. That's covenantal language. That's language of covenant. Not everybody's God's people. When he enters into covenant with someone, he says, And I'll be your God and you will be what? My people. A very unique group of people. Verses 10 through 12. Isaiah says. Out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one. My servant make. Whom? Many. To be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Of the many. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Yeah, he bore the sin of many, many. What is vital here is this many refers to a large group of people. And if you go back, let context help us. Please, let the context help us who the many are, and then you're going to understand Verse 15 of chapter 52. He, like a priest, so, he, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Many nations. And that's the whole theology coming out of the New Testament. And even in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, the God's elect is going to be coming not only from Israel, but now from other places in the globe. From every tribe, nation, town. So the many here is clearly a reference to the many of the chosen ones scattered throughout the globe. As a priest and sacrifice, the suffering servant has a peculiar people in his heart. The servant, the Messiah, will not intercede or mediate and be a sacrifice for every single individual in the world, but only for a group of people chosen by God himself. The many is important because the many is a restrictive term. So there are many who are justified and and at the same time we are reminded there are many who perish. Many for whom Christ died and many for whom he did not die. Jesus himself said, enter by the narrow gate for gate is the wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are what? Many, many who perish. Strive to enter through a narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Many. So Motir, he says, The implication of this is that the many who are the object of both the saving work of the servant and its application in verse 10 through 12, are the strange sheep of verse 6, whose iniquities Yahweh laid upon the servant, and who are converted miraculously by his death. Many then has a certain specificity to it, while also retaining its inherent numerousness. It refers to those for whom the servant made atonement, and to whom he applies that same atonement. And the beautiful thing about Isaiah 53 is this change that takes place as the servant dies. Before his death, we esteem him not. We had no eyes to see. And as he dies we can see, because his death is powerful, because his death is efficacious, those who were the recipients of his death now can see that he's actually dying in my place. And no wonder, look at chapter 54. Joy, because the new covenant is established by the death of the servant. So single bearing, and then he goes on to say, how the new covenant has been established by the death of the servant. So, so much to say. Not much time for us to be there. But you can see that God accomplished atonement through the death of the servant. His death is a powerful, efficacious death. He accomplished the forgiveness of sins, the just, justification of God's people, and the inauguration of the new covenant. Moving one more, just one more in the Old Testament. There are so many, but let's just be selective here and go to Zechariah. Zechariah is a wonderful book talking about the death of Christ. Contrary to some, I don't think Zechariah is pointing to the second coming, but to the first coming because that's how the gospel writers apply the book of Zechariah. That's how John applies the book of Zechariah. That's how the gospel writers show that Zechariah was pointing... The Messiah to come. In Zechariah 9, just one of those passages is chapter 9, verse 1. The prophet says, As for you also, because of what? The blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And brothers and sisters, when Jesus is celebrating, instituting, the Lord's Supper, do you remember what he says about his blood? This is the blood of the covenant. He's drawing from Zechariah 9, Exodus chapter 24, referring to a very specific group of people. And it's this group of people who will benefit from the death of the Messiah that Zechariah talks about. The shepherd who will be stricken and smitten. And by his death, we see the Prisoners will be set free from the waterless pit. And that's us, brothers and sisters, by his death. By his death. Jesus is the shepherd priest of Zechariah who dies for his people. So you can see through the whole Old Testament, there's just this glorious, unified teaching that atonement is always flowing from election and it's always for the people that were elected. And that's crucial. Because as we come to the New Testament, where we are going now to start journeys to the New Testament, don't worry, you're just going to start the New Testament. They're not creating something new about the death of Christ. They're basing their theology in the inspired revelation, inspired revelation of Yahweh in the Old Covenant. They're not just coming up with something new, they're basing that on what they know from God Himself. And as we come to the New Testament, we see how the whole theology of the sacrificial system and the priesthood is picked up by the New Testament authors in order to show how Christ, how Christ is the fulfillment of all those types and prophecies related to him. And I just want to start first with Paul, Paul's teachings. And you think about Paul, there's just this immense theology of election and the death of Christ. And you've got to keep in mind that as Paul is writing his theology of atonement, he's basing his theology in the Old Testament. So for example, in Romans chapter three, Romans chapter three, Paul says, "For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." What doctrine is that? In the five points. Total depravity. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they're are justified by his grace as a gift. A gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, look at that, whom God the Father put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the Apostle Paul declares that God the Father set forth Jesus as propitiation by his blood. And some of your Bible versions, if you look, there will be a footnote saying the mercy seat, right? Or mercy seat. And that's very similar, the idea here. Why? Right? Because in the day of atonement, the high priest had to put the blood in the mercy seat. Why? To appease the wrath of God. And propitiation means that. The appeasement, appeasing God's wrath. So they walk together. And Paul, do you see Paul, when he says that God the Father put forward Jesus as propitiation by his blood, where is, where, where, where is he going? Leviticus 16. Is going all the way back. By the blood of Christ, who was pictured with those goats, now the true peace, shalom, has been achieved. And look at it. Jesus is our propitiation. It's not that maybe, it might be. He is. He appeased God's wrath on behalf of His people. And then Paul goes on to say, he says, I received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Passing over former sins? Whose sins are those that He passed over? That's a good question. The sins of every single individual? Pharaoh who is in hell? No, he's referring to God's chosen people. To remember that those sacrifices was just like a bank waiting for the blood of Christ to be spilled. They were saved by faith in the promise, waiting for the accomplishment of Christ. And that's what Paul is telling us here. Now is the true sacrifice being offered. Now God shows himself to be righteous in forgiving his saints in the past. Because what's pointing and now has been fulfilled. Remember, you cannot you cannot come to God, we men, by the sacrifice of goats and bulls and lambs. We need a man. That's the whole theology of the Bible. That's why you need the incarnation. And that's what Paul is saying. Because oh so God was unjust, was not righteous because people are being saved by the sacrifice of animals. Oh yeah, but the animals were pointing now to the true lamb. And when he comes, he shows that all those were being banked in this bank of faith for Christ to come and bring the redemption that they were looking for and waiting for. So if the former sins have a universal reference, then one has to ask, what Christ's propitiation accomplished for the sins of Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Persians? Then we fall into the trap of Mark Driscoll and that book that I mentioned to you, the people are in hell and now at peace with God. It's like, that makes no sense. Last passage, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. We have a glimpse of the many elements involved in our salvation, known as the golden chain of salvation, and it's all of God. God alone is the author and the finisher of our salvation. Redemption and atonement, once again, are the fruit of election and predestination. That's what I see in Romans chapter 8. And then look at verse 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for whom? Ah. Remember Isaiah 53? If God... Is for us, who can be against us? And look how he says, He who did not spare his own son, where is Paul going with that? Or where is he drawing this from? Do you remember a father who was willing to not spare his own son? Where we started, Genesis 22, very similar language in the Greek. Now the ram, the seed of Abraham in Christ. So he says, He who did not spare his own son. Look at Paul going to Genesis 22. But gave him up for us all. Isaiah 53. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things related to what? Prosperity, car, houses, boats. Is that what Paul is saying? The context is salvation. Give us all the things that we need for salvation. Paul goes on to say, look at verse 34. Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Look at the language of sacrifice. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed, what is he doing? Who interceded in the Old Testament? The high priest, who is interceding for us. So here we see Paul getting the his theology of Old Testament, Isaiah 53, and applying to Jesus. Jesus Christ. In his priestly office, Jesus offers himself and intercedes for us with a certain result. An effective redemption. And look at that he's interceding for us all. And who is the us all? Those whom the Father foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and will glorify. So we see how Paul is taking us back in the drum of redemption all the way back to Genesis. Taking us all the way back to Genesis. Showing that Jesus is the ram that took the place of the seed of Abraham. He is our Passover lamb who took away the sins of his people, causing the angel of death to pass over us. Jesus is the true mercy seat where the blood is sprinkled in order to appease God's wrath and bring forgiveness to God's people. Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus is the great high priest who bears the name of all his chosen people engraved on his shoulders. Why? And then he carries us back to where Adam took us away from, and that is the house of God. So he has each one of his sheep's name engraved on his shoulders. And he brings us, each one of those who he has the name engraved, he brings us back to the Father's house to fellowship with him. That's why he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also seem graciously give us all things? All things are ours because of him. What a, what a priest we have. How little we make of Christ when we say that he had no one, no one in mind when he came. How we destroy his priestly ministry, how we destroy the unity of the Trinity. How marvelous it is. That's why Paul is saying, that's why he, talk about bravery. A man who is willing to die, be stoned, face anything. Why? He knew, he knew that he had the perfect high priest interceding for him, and this high priest had his own name written on his shoulder. And nothing could separate him from the love of God the Father. You see how the doctrine of limited atonement is so powerful. Making timid people bold people. Because we know that Christ when he came, he had Charlene's name written right there. He had Sue's name right there. He had Rosie's name right there. He had Sam's name right there wasn't just a, a, a mass of people He had no idea. He had each one of his sheep there. Oh, Lord, how marvelous, how wonderful, how glorious is your work of redemption. And we truly stand in awe. Oh, as we behold the uh, the perfect priest and sacrifice, we are humbled, we are humbled, humiliated to think that the God who never needed anybody, who has always been complete in the three persons of the Godhead, who has no need, yet in mercy, compassion, righteousness, love, came and rescued a very specific group of people to magnify His grace and His glory. So help us. Help us to love you more, treasure you more. Help these doctrines to, to drive us to love more and more the one who loved us uniquely, peculiarly. Change us, O oh Lord, for the glory of Your name. Amen. Amen.